0: I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes this time. This evening, chapter 10, I'll be reading the entirety of that chapter, but I'm going to stop this evening on verse 15. I'll read the whole chapter, but I really want to focus our attention on verses 1 through 15 this evening. Here as I read from God's Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, dead flies putrefy <clears throat> the, pu- the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. For consolation pacifies, I'm sorry, conciliation pacifies great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, while the rich <clears throat> sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go out to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask even now this evening that we might gain from you wisdom and understanding. Our desire, Lord, is not to escape the heaviness of life, the vanity, the vapor quality of it, but to, through wisdom, make the most of the days that you have given us. And so may we begin by the fear of the Lord. Teach us then to number our days, to celebrate, to mourn, to do what is fitting for every time. For in this, we honor you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. How do you put it into words? How do you put wisdom into words? One of my dearest friends of the faith, the father in the faith really to me for a few years while I was a member at Matthews, now Resurrection OPC, was a man named Doug Clark. Doug Clark was known for his southern idioms. And if there is anything that is true of an idiom, it is that it is at one time true and at the other time it is also easily disproven. This is the difficulty that Solomon has when conveying wisdom through words. God has given us words and much of that is plain upon the surface of it but much of it in the wisdom books demands it begs us to mind the riches and the depth of it as we live our lives it is hard to know how something can be true if we have not seen or experienced or to live out its truth and so solomon is writing to the church as one who has seen it all and even as he has seen it all he expresses to the reader there's really nothing new under the sun. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, there's a lot of new things. There's something new every fall. My phone gets upgraded. My computer gets upgraded. My appliances can connect to the World Wide Web. But for what reason, I wonder? What good is an interconnection if your freezer doesn't freeze? <laughs> or if the stove does not light? And I wonder, are we better? Is life easier? I haven't memorized a phone number since I dated my wife. <laughs> I don't know anybody's phone number. That's the last number I ever memorized. In fact, my parents just recently cut off their landline because my dad, at the age of 71, got his first cell phone. And so the other day when they were coming to visit, he showed me his new phone, but he had to turn it on first. I said, ugh. You're such a geezer. <laughs> I cannot believe it. He goes, what? I don't need it. <laughs> I said, well, then why do you have it? He goes, because they made me have it at the office. And so there are times where things appear new, but they're not. How do you put into words principles of life that are inexhaustibly universally true? Well, you cannot. And that is one of the challenges that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. That is one of the challenges of gleaning wisdom from words. And so we ought to, as we open the scriptures, be resolved with this in mind, that we are not God, that there is a God who is sovereign over the affairs of all men and the pursuit of wisdom is not a pursuit, or it ought not to be pursued, so that we might be like God, knowing good and evil, but to be faithfully, joyfully, cheerfully, hopefully resigned to live in a world that God rules over and to know that He is good and that all that He does is good for us. And that we have to take this glorious gift of wisdom, of judgment of learning how to discern right from wrong and to live in light of that so that we, in the short lives that we have on earth, glorify God with everything that we have and everything that we are. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that. And so we continue upon this theme as Solomon sort of takes these little pieces and weaves them together into this wisdom literature. Two points that I want to make tonight then. First, gleaning wisdom from words... Gleaning wisdom from words, and then second, examples of the complexity of wisdom. Examples of the complexity of wisdom. Now, how do we put it in words? When you say something to your child, like, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, what does that mean? What you have is inherently more valuable than what may be out there. But what if you're playing the stock market? Or what if it isn't actually true all the time? And it can't be true all the time. It may be that there are two birds in that bush and you ought to go get those birds, And so we have many of these maxims, many of these idioms, and these proverbial statements even in Scripture. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so what many Christians say is, well, if I'm a good parent, then that means that my children will grow up to be Christians. But that is not always the case. For what is a good parent? What level of goodness? This was the struggle that Martin Luther had in his own life. How much sin must I confess if I am to look at God and not be afraid of his coming? For the wrath of godliness is revealed against all mankind. What he did not read was of the glory of Christ. And so he would confess every little sin and not only sins but weaknesses such that his counselor, his fellow monk in the Augustinian order said, When are you going to confess real sins? Who is good? And at what point does a parent mess up so that they guarantee that their child exits the faith? No, this statement is not universally flatly true, but it is true in the main. If you raise up your child in covenant faithfulness, most often they grow up to love the Lord. Because there's another principle. It's the monkey see, monkey do principle. Your children do what you do more than they do what you say. Are you cheerful when you come to the Lord's house? Well, they will be cheerful. If you complain all the way to church, guess what they're going to do? Oh, I don't want to be there. But sometimes you have terrible parents. And out of the abundance of God's grace, you get a little green shoot from dead ground. Who can tell? In fact, Solomon talks about these paradoxes throughout the book. The race is not to the swift. What? What do we have? The tortoise and the hare. But the tortoise and the hare is a bit absurd. Why? Because it requires that the rabbit take a nap. I've been to the Olympics. The race is to the swift. So what does he mean? The battle's not always to the strong, nor does Bread always to the wise. In fact, even wisdom is not always met with the kinds of blessing that we think wisdom should get. It is not always, if this, then always that. What Solomon is doing is he is upsetting the apple cart of the security that we want from wisdom that wisdom does actually not provide. And it is for this reason. Wisdom itself is subject to heaven, to the vanity, the vapor, the shortness of life. It is practice under the sun. And so the reason for all of this is because we live in a world that is not only creaturely defined by limitations that we are not God... Alpha and Omega, no beginning, no end. We are not eternal, we are immortal beings, but we have a beginning, and we have, at least on this earth, an end. And the application of wisdom is within that sphere. It is upon that stage. And Solomon has already addressed, you have the unrighteous, and they seek to, through their own cunning devices, sort of rebel from the authority of God... And it catches up with them. And then you have the righteous that try to manipulate or cajole God through wisdom by saying, if I do X, maybe he will reward me. Children, it's like this. It's when you want something from your parents and that's when you obey. That is not wisdom. And that is not righteousness. It is, in fact, more unrighteousness. I hate to break it to you. But it's not just children that do this, right? You want a promotion at work? This is oftentimes what happens. You butter up the boss. Wisdom is subject to heaven. Wisdom is practiced under the sun. And if you are wise, it does not mean that you get to exit this world filled with hevel, pain, and death. We are not Gnostic. Salvation isn't sort of a disembodied marijuana state where just high we can't be touched everything is good all the time that is not what wisdom gets you in fact wisdom will not allow you to solve all the world's problems and if it does allow you to solve one problem guess what's coming down the chute the next problem in fact in the old testament law what we find is the righteousness of god judiciously applied to all of life it's wisdom And God even says, if you give to the poor, treat them justly, then you will help alleviate the burden of poverty in society, except this. You will always have the poor among you. There will always be those coming down the chute who need provision, who need the application of wisdom. And so it's not one of those sort of movie endings where... The happy ending comes, and then you just think, oh, well, then the rest of their life must be gravy. That's not how it works. Even wisdom is limited by death. When I say limited, what I mean is you and I, even if we exercise wisdom, we'll die. Good diet, good exercise. Not getting sunburned too many times. (laughs) You can be very judicious in the way that you live your life and still not escape the reality of God's sovereignty over your life. In fact, what wisdom does is does not look for an escape from sovereignty, but gives you hope, confidence, comfort, and a a sweet resolve under it. Uh, There was a missionary to Africa named Helen Roosevelt. If you ever have a chance to read any of Helen Roosevelt's books, read them all. Helen Roosevelt was a single woman who worked in Africa, uh, and she was a very faithful sort of servant of the people in the church there. She ministered to families. She cared for orphans. All of these things that the covenant community needs. She had been attacked many times, molested, abused, tortured even. And then towards the latter part of her life, she contracted breast cancer. And she remembers praying distinctly, Lord, how could you do this to me? It was a prayer she quickly repented of. And she repented of it when she walked into the clinic where there were other women, the women's clinic who are also undergoing treatment for a variety of diseases. And she looked in their faces and they suffered without hope. And she looked at them and realized, there it is. That's the reason. God hasn't cursed me. (laughs) He's blessed me with an opportunity to minister to those without hope. Now this is the great danger of the health and wealth gospel. The health and wealth gospel actually takes out of the center of the Bible all of wisdom literature and jettisons it. And it is an anathema. And it should be run out of town. (laughs) Wisdom says, Lord, though I have done all of these things for you, and not for my own glory, but out of a sincere desire to honor and serve you, thank you thank you. Or I remember years ago when I was a student at the university and my dad and I would have dinner a couple times a month and this was, I was I guess I was 22 at the time, so this was 20 years almost to the day that my, young, uh, my older sister died of leukemia at age four. And we sat down there one night and we were eating sushi and he said, you know, I could finally say after 20 years, it's good that your sister died. I thought, what? Now, for me, this whole topic is... I was two years old. It didn't have a a huge emotional weight. But for my father and my mother, for him to be able to say, Lord, thank you. it, It encapsulates just how slow our progress in wisdom often is and how painful the path is to get to the point where we do not say, Lord, what can I do to avoid all trial and difficulty, but rather to say, Lord, whatever it takes to make me more like yourself, would you do that instead? When God came to Solomon and he said, what do you want? He said to the Lord, You have been faithful to my father. Help me to determine rightly. Give me wisdom. And what did the Lord give Solomon? Not only wisdom, but all glories and blessings beyond it. Now, it was those glories that were not wisdom that betrayed the heart of Solomon ultimately. And it's only a few chapters later that he dies, having shamed the throne of Israel. But wisdom in its pursuit and its application is very complex, and it cannot be reduced to idioms and maxims. It must be searched. It must be mined from the depth and the beauty of Scripture. And so if you're seeking to gain wisdom for the benefit of fortune, ease, comfort, power, in this life and in this life only, then you're not actually seeking wisdom. You're seeking an idol. You're an idol worshiper. Rather, the real benefit of wisdom is not comfort, painlessness, ease, but rather its precious value is in teaching us how to live righteously when we are surrounded on all sides by conflict, pain, irony, paradox, and it gives us hope to celebrate with sincerity and to exercise that hope in every season of life. So let's turn to the second point. uh, examples of the complexity of wisdom. And here we find these little sections throughout this text. That was not the intro. (laughs) That was a whole point one. You're going, oh, no, that was just the intro. (coughs) We have a spoiled dog in our house. Her name is Bodie. And Bodie is just tall enough when a kid sits down at the table that is our schoolroom table to eat breakfast or whatever meal they might be eating there, to touch whatever food with her nose or tongue she desires. Now, I will say this. If it's my food, I don't really care. But there are some in my house who don't like the fact that a dog's nose has touched their food, or a dog, and a dog's nose and a dog's tongue, are, those are two very different things, I'll admit. It's the same idea. You have this beautiful dish, and it's laid out on the table, and then there's just a, just a little lick. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A little folly is like that little dog's lick on that beautiful ribeye that you just put up on your plate. And you look at it and go, ugh, I'm not going to eat that. Folly will ruin an application of wisdom. And he continues, a wise man's heart is at his right hand. The right hand in Scripture is the the arm of strength, the left of weakness. A wise man's heart is strong, it is solid, but a fool's heart is weak. Even when a fool, verse 3, walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. Even if you see a fool doing what appears to be wise, he's not doing it because he's wise. And eventually what he will show is what? That he is in fact a fool. And then you go to verse 4. The spirit of the ruler rises against you. Do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. Solomon is saying, first, you can exercise an incredibly wise, moral, upright life, but one act of folly, it can ruin it it can give off a mal odor it can introduce some toxic element and so verse 4 here's the occasion if there is someone in power who rises against you stay strong and do not give yourself to folly do not leave your post ha huh. leave your post Children, if there is any principle you need to realize as you grow into adulthood, it is this. Man the line. Keep the post. Do not be tempted by those who would say, oh, the post will be fine. You come this way. The post is what? An upright, righteous life. Hmm. It should be. As we looked at chapter 9... There was a poor wise man who saved the city. It should be that that wise man got the credit. But who got it? The foolish king, the guy whose picture is on the poster, on the TV. Folly can ruin a lot. And so what? Don't leave your post. Example two, we see that in verses five through seven. There is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity it's not always the wise man who wins the election, is it? It's a paradox. You would think that the greatest, the wisest, the most moral, those who are peerless are here. But can you imagine the most righteous man you've ever met win a national election in this country today? Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine them winning maybe, maybe a local election if it didn't get out, that they were too righteous? Can you imagine running for office in Lowell and this is your running point? I'm going to shut all businesses down on Sunday. We are going to honor the Sabbath. Shut them all down. You know what they would do? They wouldn't put out your signs. <laughs> You'd have to infiltrate for a little while. You'd have to get really people to like you. So why is it that we find fools in positions of power? Well, in our country, in a representative republic, they're put there by other fools. And fools love company of fools. It's not always, maybe even often, that the wise sit upon the throne. But oftentimes it is those who are thirsty for an earthly throne when that kind of power is not really an advantage. In fact, what we learn is that God shames the powerful, the rich, the worldly wise by those lowly and downtrodden. I think last time I was in the pulpit, I quoted that portion of that article from Carl Truman. Of all the men and women that you know who have contributed to the life of the church, a thousand A hundred thousand times that. A million, tens of millions, have faithfully served the work of the church and they have done so without name and recognition. They are those upon whom Christ and through whom Christ is taking dominion. And so even if folly is set in great dignity, it is because in this world of heaven under the sun, there are times when folly wins the day. Example 3, verses 8 through 10. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. All right. Wisdom brings success. But let's say you have a group of wise, thoughtful engineers, and they are going to dig a pit, but they cannot foresee that as they are digging this pit, there is an empty, hollow space under the earth's surface. What happens? Despite the application of wisdom, one mistake costs lives. It costs time. It costs money and capital. Accidents happen, and they happen when you do not expect, even if you are seeking to apply wisdom and discernment and understanding. What I am saying, or what Solomon is saying, is this. Wisdom does not solve all the problems. It is not a complete advantage. It does not guarantee absolute success, but it does bring some success. There is a greater chance of falling into a hole if you don't plan. I remember years ago hearing of this story, of this couple that remodeled this beautiful farmhouse. They spent well over a million dollars restoring this house. And while they were away, there was a company that was digging a utility line by the road near the house. And when they were digging, they cut the gas line because they didn't, Call before you dig have y'all seen those please do that especially if you're on my road <laughs> they hit the gas line and the gas went up into the house and began to leak into the house until the pilot light cut on and you probably could have seen it from space <laughs> the house it didn't burn it exploded <laughs> Sometimes you exercise great wisdom, but then there's the guy that comes along and doesn't call before he digs. A great project can be thwarted by even the smallest mistake. Think of the work of the church. How many mistakes your session has made? (laughs) How many times the session has met and gone, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And God is gracious and gives us increase nonetheless. And then fourth, um, this is going to be our final example tonight. Verses 11 through 15. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. This is a proverb about social media. Think about it. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. A babbler is no different. What is a babbler? It's someone who talks and does not know what they're saying. Now, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. That means they bring healing, instruction, insight. But the lips of a fool swallow him up. They are to his detriment. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of this multiplied conversation is raving madness. Such that it's babble. It's babble. In fact, I wonder if you were to go back millennia. When God judged the language of those building the Tower of Babel, is that not what Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram really are? Everyone talking but no one having anything to say. Now, I'm not saying everyone is like that, but there are a lot of people like that, especially Twitter. It is a cesspool of armchair experts who endeavor to be Self-congratulated for their ostentatious, hedonistic, damnable heresies. And they want people to say, wow, you are so smart. In fact, this is what most universities are actually built upon, is this idea. And I had many professors who were just like this. It's like a man who seeks to tame a serpent or seeks to charm a serpent, but not having learned how to tame it. It reminds me of the passage from James You can tame big beasts, but no man has tamed the tongue. Your mouth, young people, can get you in a lot of trouble. My mom would say that's why you've given one mouth and two ears. Listen twice as much you talk. Now, she did not know she was talking to a dyed-in-the-wool fowler. (laughs) I come by it honest. The reality is that God has kept from all men some knowledge that is necessary to live and speak appropriately at all times. And there are some times where you should just go, I'm good. I'm not going to say anything. The fool is endeavoring to speak with authority about things he knows nothing about. The wise man knows what he does not know, and he seeks rather to trust in the Lord and to leave to the Lord the things that are his. Now the next two sort of parables I want to take next week because I think those things will be for us very helpful in our own current sort of cultural climate. But what is wisdom's real worth? That's the question I want to answer tonight quickly at the end. It is to develop perspective and is to develop patience. Now, when I say perspective, what I mean by that is this. God is building something glorious on earth that even now we cannot see or imagine. But nonetheless, it is being built. It is being built stone by stone, brick by brick. It is a holy house. It is that house of the kingdom of Christ and his exalting glory. Now you must know that as a builder, as a layer of stones, that our job is not to design, but to lay stone by stone by stone. The plans are Christ's, the purposes are Christ's, all of that belongs to him. And I want you to think even about our fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How low was that wall that they began to build? Where are we? Are we on scaffolding yet? I don't think we're at the flying buttresses yet. But in the, in the manifestation of God's covenant of grace, what we find is words given to us rightly suited to teach us how to live in this world, to live faithfully, with perspective and with patience. And so the question is oftentimes for us with wisdom is, um, can I nuke this? That's slang for microwave. <laughs> Earlier this week, I made a brisket. And I, I made it, and I'm sitting in my little study, which is now off of the garage. I've been consigned to the garage, <laughs> which is fine with me. And I'm watching my smoker, and my lips are just salivating. I can smell the smoke, and I can look at that brisket, and I'm going, dinner is going to be Glorious! <laughs> But you can't microwave a brisket, can you? You have to cook it low and slow. Such is the kingdom of God. St. Peter's Basilica took 144 years to build. Notre Dame, over 200 years. The York Minster Cathedral, 253. Anger Wat, which is a pagan temple, but it took 400. Petra, you know that city that is carved in the side of a mountain in Jordan? 800 years they labored to build that city, carving it out of stone. And the great wall from the beginning to the end was 2,000 years of building. You're going to live 80 to 100 years. Dust upon the scales. How dare we think that through wisdom we might wrench God's divine supernatural will to make ourselves the center of the known universe. Instead, what are we called to do? To keep the post. Don't leave the post. Don't act up. Keep wisdom in your right hand. Do not be that thing that gives off the foul old odor. Do not defy and misbehave. But rather, know the truth, live in light of the truth, and seek to live in such a way that through patience and perspective and by the application of wisdom, in the time that we've been given, not only are we made fit for service, but that we hear the well done of our Redeemer, but that we lay stone by stone the glorious kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we ask